Our growth series has been about kind of reclarifying and defining what is the vision and the mission of Heart of the City Church. Now, our mission statement has always been and will continue to be to be a people after God's own heart. Can you say it with me? To be a people after God's own heart. We didn't just make that up. We got that from Scripture. The the Bible says that David was a man after God's own heart, and that's what we want to be. We want to be a people after God's own heart. But as of late, we really felt, felt stirred to clarify what that means. What does that mean to us? What does it mean to be a people after God's own heart? And so we've done this. We believe that we've summarized this with four statements, and that's what we've been talking about during this series. And those four statements are to know God, find freedom, oh, they're there, discover purpose, and make a difference. For us to do that ourselves and to help other people do that. For us, that's what it means to be a people after God's own heart. This is actually the last message of the series, so we're going to be talking about making a difference, the last phrase of those. But I just... But I just challenge you to invite you. If you've missed any of the, of the weekends and you, you haven't been able to check them out online or anything, please go back and do that. And the reason is not because I think you're going to get blessed from me and Connor and Craig talking, but because we want all of us to be in unity going the same direction moving forward. And this series is absolutely pivotal to who we are and where we're headed. Okay? So let me just, I'm not going to ask you to commit to, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but I'm just going to lay that out for you. Okay? So we're talking about making a difference today. And in order to talk about that, I want to discuss the topic of light, the topic of light and making a difference. We're going to look at four passages of scripture. We're going to look at two passages that talk about Jesus as light. And we're going to look at two passages that talk about us, his followers, his disciples as light. Two passages about Jesus as light, two passages about us as light. So four passages. We're going to look at John chapter 1, John chapter 8, Matthew chapter 5, and Ephesians chapter 5. You guys ready to jump in with me? Yeah. All right. Let's start with John 1. John 1. So John was a disciple of Jesus. He calls himself. It's so funny. I love John because he's, I love the way he knows his identity. He refers to himself in the own gospel that he's writing as the disciple that Jesus loved. And for us, no, seriously, for us, we might look at that and be like, that's arrogant. And I would say, no, 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 that's not arrogant. That's actually a right understanding. We're going to talk a little bit more about that. But I love that John knew who he was. He was the disciple that Jesus loved. And can I just tell you something, church? You are the disciple that Jesus loved. Andrew Terry, you're the disciple that Jesus loved. Cheryl Sprague, you're the disciple that Jesus loved. He wasn't calling himself exclusively. He was just recognizing, hey, I don't know if all these other disciples recognize it, but I'm about to recognize I'm the one that Jesus loves. <laughs> so this is his account of the gospel, and it's, and it's special because it, it characterizes itself. It appears a little bit different than the other gospels. I'm not talking about different factually so much as I'm talking about different in style. The other gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are known as the synoptic gospels. They're, they're very similar. But John has a very different style, and his focus appears to be a little bit different too. Um, his focus, he, he says what his, his primary purpose is with this gospel account later in it, and it says, direct quote, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. I'd say that's a pretty good reason to write a gospel account. I love that. And so we're going to just look at the first few scriptures of John, John chapter 1, first few scriptures, and, and, you, and you might be familiar with it. It's, it. it's famous for its poetic and theological richness. We're going we're to look at verse 1. In the beginning, this is John 1, 1, not first John, this will look completely different when you go to 1 John. That's, and that's a whole different one. But John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. 
All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to, this is not, this is not John the disciple, this is John the Baptist, different John. John must have been a popular name. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Now we're going to fast forward a little bit, but same gospel account, book of John, chapter 8, and we're going to find Jesus, and it's just after he is essentially rescued, uh, this lady who was caught in adultery. The way he rescues her is he speaks to her accusers and says, hey, all right, you who is without sin, cast the first stone. And then he writes something in the dirt. I don't know exactly what he wrote in the dirt, but I think it was probably pretty convicting because those guys walked away with their, and dropped their stones. But right afterwards, the, the religious leaders of the time really have not taken a liking to Jesus. And uh, they're questioning his credibility, going, how can you testify about yourself? Why, why should we believe you? And right in the midst of this criticism, he says in verse 12, this is John 8, 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Listen closely to the way he says that. I am the light of the world, the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I'm the light of the world. Okay, now we're going to look at Matthew, another gospel account by disciple Matthew. This, one's fo- this, this gospel account, it seems to be that his focus, even though that the, the book of Matthew is for all of us to read, and we're all the the audience, as it were, it does seem that he has a focus on the Jewish people in letting them know and and proving to them, if you will, that Jesus is fulfilling all these prophecies of the Messiah and that he himself is indeed the Messiah that they have been waiting for. That seems to really be the focus of of, of this particular gospel. If you read the gospel of Matthew, you'll notice so many quotes from the Old Testament that talk about the Messiah. And Matthew's really like, hey, y'all, I don't know if you heard, but he came. This is the one we've been waiting for. And it's also interesting that Matthew is broken for what we can see into five segments. And each of them are around five big important discussions. Five has led some people to believe, the way that it's built has led some people to believe that it's supposed to reflect the Pentateuch. Don't, I don't want you to lose, I don't want to lose you right here. The Pentateuch are the first, it's the first five books of the Old Testament. And some people even saw the book of Matthew, saw maybe what his intent was for the gospel of Matthew to almost be like a new Torah, which is, which is basically the holy book of the Jewish people. It's their canon, the Torah. And with Jesus as a new and better version of Moses. So that's the context of Matthew that we're finding right here. And we're going to look at a passage where we're in the midst of one of those important five discussions in a famous part known as the Sermon on the Mount. You guys have heard of the Sermon on the Mount? Sermon on the Mount is a really special passage in which Jesus is bringing, he's shifting the paradigm of the, the disciples, bringing a whole new revelation on what it means to love and obey God. All right, to love and obey God. We're gonna look at, start, verse, start in verse 14. You are the light of the world. Huh, wait, didn't we just read in chapter eight that Jesus says, I am the light of the world? He says, you are the light of the world. All right, we'll keep going. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people put 
nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. All right, last one we're going to look at is Ephesians chapter 5. If you were here a couple weeks ago, I gave a little bit more context on Ephesians, a little bit of history. I'm going to skip most of that right now. If you want to know more about Ephesians, you can look back at the message two weeks ago, or you can ask Dave Carlson. If you guys don't know Dave, he's an elder in our church, and he loves to talk Bible, and he will school you in Scripture right now. <laughs> Seriously. Every time I talk to him about Bible, I'm just like, he teaches me something new. Anyway, that's beside the point. But if you want to know more about Ephesians, look back at the message two weeks ago on discovering purpose. But I do, want to, I do want to say this about Ephesians. It seems to be the primary purpose of Ephesians, based on what Paul says, instead of being correcting, which a lot of Paul's letters have a lot of correction in them, they're like, church, you guys are wigging out. You guys got to change this. This is jacked up. We're, we're supposed to be a witness, and you guys are doing some crazy stuff. But with the book of Ephesians, with this letter in particular, he seems to be, maybe he believes that maybe the, 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 the church in Ephesians is a little bit more mature, or I don't want to speculate too much, but he's focusing on the deep purposes of the church. And we'll see this progression in the book of Ephesians where he talks about us being reconciled to God primarily, and then in turn, us being reconciled to each other. And as we reconcile with God, and as we reconcile with each other, we are able to fulfill the purposes that he has for us, not only in our physical life here on earth, but the eternal purposes in what I would call the narrative of eternity. And all I mean by that is basically the big picture, all of reality from the beginning when, you know, I'm, talk, I'm not just talking about the beginning of the earth. I'm talking about uh, we have a purpose, church. I don't know if you know this, but we have a purpose in the whole big picture of reality. And Paul is, is tackling some of these things here in Ephesians. So we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 8. It says, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then on how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. You guys pray with me? Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are trustworthy. God, we thank you for your presence here among us, that we could gather like this. We pray that your truth would be planted deep inside of our hearts today, Lord, that your truth would stand, that everything else would fall away. God, open the eyes of our hearts that we might receive what you would speak to us today as your logos becomes your rhema, as your written word becomes your spoken word, your now word for today. We love you, we commit this time to you, and we say, have your way, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, amen. So light, I want to, I want to talk about light. We talked a little bit about light from a scriptural context. I want to talk about it from a natural context as well. The, the simple definition of light is the natural agent that stimulates sight and makes things visible. The more or the less simple version is electromagnetic radiation with a certain portion of electromagnetic spectrum. The word usually refers to visible light, which is the visible spectrum that is visible to the human eye and is responsible for the sense of sight. 
I tend to like the more simple one a little bit better. It seems a little bit more clear for me. I'm not a scientist. The natural agent that stimulates sight and makes things visible. Makes things visible. So you guys familiar with the Greek philosopher? His name is Plato. Not the, not the dough, but the Plato, you know, the old guy. The old guy who was a philosopher. Um, so he thought, he had this theory, and it's known as extra mission. And it's this thought that the way we see is by shooting light rays out of our eyes, which modern science has mostly said, no, no, not quite, not really quite. But he wasn't that far off because what modern science has also revealed is that we as humans, along with all living things, are bioluminescent. You guys know what bioluminescent means? It means we glow. We glow. Now, it's kind of a dim glow that we can't see because our eyes aren't powerful enough, but we do glow. And we are brightest during the afternoon, humans. We're brightest during the afternoon, typically. And we're brightest in our face, specifically around our our cheeks and our lips. And you're saying, Seth, why are you saying that? Well, it reminds me of Psalm 89. Interesting. Psalm 89 says, Blessed are the people who know the festal shout, who walk, O Lord, in the light of your face. We glow because we're made in the image of God. And from what we see in Scripture, his face has a light to it. Now, our eyes, our eyes aren't powerful enough to see the light in each other's faces, but it is there. And, and, and I love bringing things like this up because there's this beautiful thing that we're able to experience here in this natural world, that there are shadows of the deeper spiritual reality all around us. Creation declares the greatness of God, and creation declares the truth of God. And so what a beautiful thing. When we can observe these deep spiritual truths in this empirical world, this world that we sense with our five senses, you know, the tendency for all of us is to say, well, I'm not going to believe unless I can touch it, unless I can taste it, unless I can hear it, unless I can see it. What's so funny about that? Here's the funny thing. That we, like, we believe that something's not real unless we can sense it with the five, with, it, we have five senses, right? I'm getting all caught up because there's that, like, movie, The Sixth Sense, but we only have five. <laughs> we have five senses. Good. I'm not a scientist, but I know that. Um, but here's the thing. This, this thing, right, this physical world, it's only a reflection. It's only a reflection of this, of this deeper, truer spiritual reality. So, see, a lot of times our, our tendency in the Western world is to go, this is what's most real. And the spiritual is kind of like, well, maybe it's there. I mean, if you're new agey. But that's, that's, not, that's, not, that's not how it is. It's, 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 the, it's, kinda, it's the opposite of that, I would even say. I mean, I'm not saying that this physical world isn't real, but the spiritual reality is deeper than the physical reality. And we can see reflections of the truths of God all around us if we open our eyes to see them. Jesus uses the same exact words when describing himself in John 8 and us in Matthew 5. Did you guys notice that? I mean, I really slowed it down to, and we talked about it a little bit, but John chapter 8 and Matthew 5. John chapter 8 says, I am the light of the world. John, I mean, sorry, Matthew chapter 5, he says, you are the light of the world. He uses the same exact phrase. In the Greek, it is hophos, hokosmo. The word phos is the word light, especially the results of light or what light manifests. But in the New Testament, assumptions that we can make about light, what it's, what it's describing, it is the manifestation of God's self-existent life. And hear this or the divine illumination to reveal and impart life through Christ. 
Then we look at the word cosmos, or cosmo in this particular stance, but it's a form of the Greek word cosmos, which means world. But it literally means an orderly system, um, something ordered. It is used to refer to the world, the universe, worldly inhabitants, or worldly affairs. But when we, the reason why I'm, okay, so you guys probably hear, most of the time when I, when I speak, I use Greek words. I'm, I'm, I'm not doing it so that I can sound academic and prove to you guys that I took some time before I got up here and talked. I mean, I did want to take time, and I do want to be diligent. I, I'm not saying that. But the reason I do it is because I find that our language is very limited sometimes. Just for example, let's look at the word love. One example. I love a hamburger, and I love my wife. <laughs> That's problematic. <laughs> Seriously. Did I was, did I, did, but, but we do that. We use the same word. Spanish is a little better. We use me encanta or quiero or amo. Though at least there's a little bit more differentiation, but the original biblical languages, there's, there's so much richness, richness for us to discover. And so when we reflect on the original languages that the Bible was written in, it's because sometimes when we're reading in our own language, which we can tend to maybe feel is the best or something like that, we miss things. We miss things. I just, I, I think that reflecting on the languages of the Bible is a wonderful time for us to remember that English is not the only language on the earth. I'm just going to leave that one there. <sighs> so reading deeper into these Greek meanings, we can say the divine illumination that reveals and imparts life to the world. Let's say that again. So as the light of the world, another way we could say that is the divine illumination that reveals and imparts life to the world. Just as Jesus came and revealed the Father and his kingdom, we are called to a similar revelation. I find it interesting in these scriptures that we read, he, it, it doesn't just say that we emit light or that we give light. It says that we are light. You guys know the difference there? There is a difference. You know, um, my wife and I, like I said, we work with marriages, and one of the things that we deal with is, is identity assignment. Um, what we discourage would be negative identity assignment. When we're dealing with a negative topic, um, let's say that, you know, um, let's say that me and my wife were at dinner, my wife and I were at dinner, and um, I said something that was rude and, and came across totally disrespectful. So one way she could come to me and approach me is say, hey, honey, when we were at dinner, that thing you said, I did not feel honored by that. That felt like a, a really disrespectful statement to me, okay? Or you are so disrespectful. <laughs> Do you guys hear the difference there? See, one of them was dealing with something that was done, and the other one was an identity assignment. But the same thing works with positive things, too, except, it's, except we would encourage the opposite. We do want people to, you know, of course, give your, give your spouse compliments about what they do, but more speak to who they are. Oh, that was a really nice thing you just said. Thank you for saying that nice thing. You are such a kind person. You walk around and leave kindness everywhere that you go. You hear the difference there, too? God isn't just saying that when we become believers that we give light, that we do light. He says that we are light. He's assigning identity to us. In revelation and impartation, from the phrase that I just used, the divine illumination that reveals and imparts, revelation and impartation of the true life in Christ are not just something that we do as believers. They are something that we are. They are part of the image of God that we bear. And I don't mean for that to sound super spiritual. What I mean by revelation is basically a supernatural disclosure of information. 
And what I mean by impartation would be a supernatural transmission or giving. It would be a disclosure and a giving. And that's part of who we are. We are to disclose and give light and life. The difference between being saved and unsaved, what, what Ephesians, what, I think what Ephesians is talking about here, the difference between being saved and unsaved, it's not a matter of just being in darkness or in light or giving light, darkness or giving light. It's not a matter of doing. It's much more a matter of being. When we read verse 8, I, you know how sometimes, do you ever autocorrect in your brain when you're reading something and even though it has bad grammar or bad spelling, you just put and you fix it in your head? Hopefully better than Siri. Um, but sometimes we do it wrong, just like Siri. I can't tell you, for, for most of my life when I've read this passage, I've read it, this is uh, Ephesians 5 verse 8. For at one time you were in darkness, but now you are in light in the Lord. Now, me reading that, that's not untrue. It's just not, it just doesn't reveal the deeper truth that that scripture is saying. No, verse 8 says this, not what I just said. It says, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So when we are saved, when we become disciples of Jesus, we become light. That is our very nature, our genetic makeup, spiritually speaking, changes. Our nature shifts. Now, in, in light of that, I want to talk about, in light of that, do you guys, I didn't even mean to. I didn't even mean to. I wish Don Lynn was here. He would be all about the pun. Or, or Risha Carmody. I don't know. Risha's not here today. But anyway, Tori. Tori was here. I'm sure she appreciated the pun. Um, I want to talk about two lies. Two lies that I, I think the church has believed and that it has the church. And I'm not talking about part of the city church. I'm talking about the global church. I'm talking about big, big C church. The church is in a building. And the church doesn't, is, just isn't one gathering of people. The church is the body of Christ, all the believers. Just wanted to find terms real quick. But I believe the global church is under an impression, is under, a, a, lot, a lot of us are under this deception with these two lies that I believe that God wants to break off of us today so that we walk in the fullness. So let's identify those two lies. My goal is to identify them, not just to say they're lies, but then to expel them, to say goodbye to those lies. We're on, we in support of those, of that, of lies being expelled? Okay, first lie is that sometimes we believe that even after we are saved, even after we are saved, that our nature is still to be insignificant, mediocre, lazy, and overall sinful. I'm not saying that we say all those things out, but I'm talking about an underlying lie, an underlying mindset that I think, that I think exists. We feel that unless we are endowed with something very exclusive, only for a few people, that we're going to be forgettable that we're going to just kind of live in our mediocrity. And um, according to what I see in Ephesians chapter 5, and honestly echoing throughout the New Testament, I think that's a lie. I think it's a lie that I think the enemy, he, he twists certain concepts, because that's what he do. He's a twister. He's a deceiver. He's the father of lies. He lies, I think, in order to contain the salvation that we have received isolated inside of us. Because if he can discourage us in those things, then we won't share now, I want to read one of those examples from the New Testament other than, other than what it is, is already in Ephesians 5, and that is 2 Corinthians 5.17. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new 
creation. That word creation is ketesis in the Greek, which I probably am not pronouncing right, but it is a creature from nothing. The term is ex nihilo, from nothing, a creature from nothing. The reason why I want to I emphasize this a little bit is that when we are saved, when we are in Christ, we are not a rabbit that got messed up in sin by, by being caught in an oil spill. Have you ever seen an animal in an oil, oil spill? It's so sad, you know, with... Oh my gosh, I just hate it. I hate, I hate it. You know, and then they have like the sad music playing in the commercial with the... Um, when we're saved, we're not just a rabbit who, who was in an oil spill and we got scrubbed and cleaned and happy and, and all better. Um, it's more like, well, based on this, we are, when it says new creation, new creation from nothing, ex nihilo, it's like we were this, this rabbit in the oil spill and then we we're in Christ and now we're a squirrel. Now... I'm not, that's not what the Greek says, but, but what I, the point I'm trying to get across is that we are a completely new thing. We're a completely new being. That's what, the, that's what the scripture says. I'll finish the scripture. It says, a new creation, the old has passed away. The old is gone. That old creation is not there anymore. Behold, the new has come. As a believer, you are a brand new being, a brand new creation from nothing. You were darkness. Now you are light. You're not just a little bit brighter darkness. You're a different thing. You're light. You're not defeated. You're victorious. You're not just a slightly more victorious, defeated person. I don't want to say loser because that's such a mean, I, don't, I, don't, I, I hate that. I hate that word, but you know what I mean. You're not just slightly more, more victorious, but still losing. And I'm going to say this other phrase, but don't judge me until you hear me explain it. You're not a sinner. You're a saint. Now, do I believe that believers can be tempted to sin? Absolutely. Do I believe that believers give in to sin? Absolutely. What I'm saying, though, when I use the term sinner, remember, we're talking about identity assignment. It's not who you are. It's been removed from your identification card, and it's been erased from your birth certificate. Sinner's no longer there. I can't tell you it's so important for us to understand that our default position as believers, we've got to get this, your default position where you're standing is righteousness, is holy. Where you're standing is righteousness, and to sin now is actually to step out of that position. Now, the lie that I think a lot of us believe, because when we were in the world and we were not believing, that we were in the position of sin. That was the position that we were in. We, we believe that when we get saved that we're still in the position of sin, and now it's like, we gotta, we, it's like, in order for me to get to the position of righteousness, I gotta... Uh, Read the, read, read the Bible as much as I can, be in as many small groups as I can, and, and, and pray as much as I can. Now, all those things are really good things, but they're actually supposed to be being done from this position, not in order to get to this position. To sin as a believer is to deviate from your nature, not to confirm your nature. When you were, before you were a believer, to sin was to confirm a part of your nature that was sinful. But after you are a believer as a new creation, it is a deviation. Your nature is no longer corruption. Your nature is redemption now. And it's really important that we understand that because I think a lot of, again, this is a lie that's keeping people bound because they get saved. They believe upon Jesus and they think that their default position is still sin and they can't get out of their sin because they believe it's the position that they're in. But as soon as we received Jesus, as soon as we believed on his name, as soon as the Holy Spirit sealed us, as soon as we, we were marked as a son and daughter, our default position that we rest in is righteousness. That's where you're sitting, friends. 
righteousness. The deepest desire inside of you may once have been to gratify the flesh, but that is no longer true about you. And if you believe that today, I want to encourage you, that's not true. That's not your deepest desire. You may feel like it's a desire, and, the, and, and, and there's lies out there from the enemy and from the world that says, yeah, that's what you really want. You really, like the, oh, I don't know if I should go there. Like the whole question about monogamy and, 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 and saying like, is that, were we really created for monogamy? Uh, and people just say, no, you just gotta, you follow your instincts and, and all that. No, there's a brand new nature, a brand new nature. We are no longer instinctual beings when we are in Christ. We are spiritual beings. We are sons and daughters. And we don't have to live by instinct. That is such a lie. It is such a lie that we have to live by instincts, especially even after we're saved. As a believer, you are hardwired to do good. I want you to, I want you to believe that with me today. Listen, to, you are hardwired to do good if you're a believer in this place. You're hardwired. It's in you. It's in the mechanism inside you to do good and to make a positive impact on other people's lives. That's built in now that you are a believer. It's a part of your new creation, your new nature. Okay, do we expel that lie? The, the lie? It's gone? All right, second lie that we're going to expel. That ease is the ultimate goal in life. That ease is the ultimate goal in life. We're going to expel it right now. Seems that in our culture that at least a big part of, of, of what we define as success is how long and how lush your retirement is. Now, I don't, I'm not hating on retirement at all, so don't, don't, don't hear that. I, I'm going to talk about my, my heart toward retirement in a minute. But what I'm talking about, again, what I'm talking about is a mindset. We daydream when, you know, when we're in the middle of like, like my age and lots of other ages, but like, we're, we're just going, oh, if I just had a different job that wasn't so demanding, then I would be happy. If I had different relationships that, that didn't require so much effort, or maybe just no relationships, maybe I'd be happier if there were no people in my life. <laughs> then I would be happy at that point. Or, or maybe if my calling, if my destiny didn't seem so much bigger, so much bigger than my own abilities, then I would be happy. The notion that ease leads to contentment is a lie. It's a deception to keep you from being great. It's a mirage. It looks really nice when you're in the midst of the battle. It looks really nice when you're, in, when you're getting gritty and you're going, wow, ease would be so good. What if I just went and I just, like for me personally, maybe, maybe you already, well, I'm just going to say, I'm just going to talk from my place. For me personally, sometimes I'm like, what if I went and did a job where I didn't have to interact with people? <laughs> and what if it was nine to five and I didn't have to interact with people? I'm telling you, it's a mirage, and I, and, I, and I feel the Holy Spirit coming over to me, and he's going. He's like, I already told you who you are. I already told you what you were meant to do. Now, if you have a job that's nine to five and doesn't interact with people, please, I'm not hating on that. That could absolutely be a part of your mission, but it's just not, it's not, my, it's not my mission. It's not why I'm breathing air, okay? It's not why me, me particularly. God has spoken to me about what I'm supposed to do, and for me to do that would be rebellion, Ease isn't just not the culmination of life. It can be, it can be rebellion for you in your situation. Now, what, uh, in order to bring some balance, I want to say that I believe that ease and rest are two different things. Don't hear me saying that you don't need to rest. You do need to rest. You, don't hear me saying that you don't need a day off. You do need a day, not, some, day off. Some of you need to hear that right now. You need a day off. 
Don't tell me, I mean, I mean, I hear, I hear you. I know, I know I have, I have entrepreneur friends who are amazing. And they're like, man, I just work 12 hour or 15 hour days every day and there's no day off. And I'm going, and, and they go, and I can't not do that. Because, and I'm going, it's not how you're built, bro. It's not how you're built. So you do need rest. You do need to have healthy time boundaries, Seth. Talking to me first right there, because if you know me, you know that I need someone to preach that to me. You do need healthy time boundaries. And... I'm not hating on retirement. Retirement, I have seen, can be the most fruitful and influential time of someone's life if it's done right. There's, two, there's more than one way to look at retirement. I have seen people go into technical retirement from career, and then they go and they spend the latter years of their life building the kingdom in such a beautiful way and making a huge impact. And speaking to a false perception, this false perception, this lie, the ease is the culmination of our existence here on earth. It's just not true. We might think it, but you're actually not built that way. That's actually not what makes you tick. That's not what's gonna fill your cup. We have this itch. I think a lot of times, I think we, we really, I think we have it before even we believe often. But when we believe, it becomes a real, a real bad itch. Real good itch. That can only be scratched by reaching into the lives of other people and making a significant difference in their lives. That's the only thing that's gonna that's gonna scratch that itch. You might think it's it's a long vacation. You might think it's a really nice car. You might think it's it's a really nice house. You might think it's a relationship with the opposite sex. You might think that that, that once you get to this stage in life, nothing's gonna scratch that itch, other than actually making an impact on another human being. I'm telling you. We are light and by nature, light reveals and gives light to others. Light changes the atmosphere. Have you ever noticed that? Light changes the atmosphere. It changes our perspective. It changes the way we see. It changes the way that reality is perceived. As a believer, you should be a walking reality perception changer. Everywhere that you go, people's view of what reality is should be shifting. You know, we sing that song, when, when you walk into the room. I'm trying to match your, your, uh, your key right there. It's a little, I'd have to push. But <laughs> when you walk into the room, everything changes. Now, I really like that song. It's one of my favorite worship songs. Oh, my gosh. I think it's amazing. But I think it's kind of a trick song. Hear me out. You know, when Jesus was talking, he was like, He's like, pray that laborers will be sent, will be sent out and, and that workers will be, but, he, but really it's like kind of like a, hey, you're the, you're the laborers, you're the workers, by the way. Pray for them, but also you. And I think that, I think, I think that, I think when we sing that song, I don't know if Brian and Katie Torwalt meant for it to be a trick song, but to me, I think it's a trick song because we're like, when you walk into the room, everything changes. And he's going, when you walk into the room is when I walk into the room. <laughs> Because I'm inside you. So we sing that and he goes, when you walk into the room, everything changes because I'm inside you. If you want the, if you want the room to change, then you better go walk into that room. Seriously. By nature, we are light. We are kingdom revealers and imparters. By nature, by our new nature, that is what we do and that's who we are. It's not a self-help thing. It's not a feel-good thing. It's not a motivational speech. It's so much deeper than that. We're going to look back at Matthew 5, 16. 
It says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. As we reveal and impart light and the eyes of people's hearts, the spiritual eyes are opened, there's no other reasonable response but to worship. That is why we are light. We are light to reveal the light. We are the light of the world, yes, but Jesus is the light of the world. We are the light of the world that reveals the light of the world. So, um, though there are spiritual and, meta- and metaphorical elements to this, to this light of the world thing, I also think that there are, there are practical things that the scriptures lay out for us um, on, on what this looks like. And so, the way I want to close today is, is not actually with action steps, even though I usually do because I think application is very important. Bobby always says, so what, now what? If you're going to go tell people a bunch of stuff, you better have a so what now what about it. But today I really felt led. I felt like we were supposed to, I want to look back at this, at this passage from Ephesians chapter 5. And I just want to ask some questions. The action part today is just questions that we ask ourselves, okay? Does that sound okay? All right, Ephesians chapter 5 starting in verse 8. Let's read it again. And let these scriptures, these, these words inspire the questions that we'll ask ourselves afterward. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. First question that I'm inviting you to ask with me, because I'm asking myself this, is the difference I'm making good? Very simple question. Is the difference I'm making good? Not does the difference I'm making have the appearance of good. You, you, ever, heard the, you, ever, you ever heard the phrase, well, the ends justified the means? You guys know that phrase? Well, I think that Matthew chapter 5 uh, shows us that, that that really isn't the case because Jesus is after the heart. The word says, man looks upon the appearance, but God looks upon the heart. There's a scripture also that says that one of my favorite worship leaders, he sings in this spontaneous moment in a song. He says, if you clean the inside of the cup, the outside will be clean. Is the difference that I'm making good at its core at its most basic level is it selfishly motivated or motivated for others is it good is it full of integrity integrity meaning does the inside look like the outside second question is the difference i'm making eternal am i only helping people with temporal needs or am i revealing christ to them you know it's most of us can get behind Helping the needy, because it's a very good thing. It's very important. If, we're not, if, we're not, if you aren't practically helping the needy in some way in your life, I would just encourage you, we, that's all of our responsibility. There's a very, very hard scripture about that that Jesus talks about with sheep and goats, and it's crazy hard. It's, it is our responsibility. We can get behind that, but, I'll, I'll add a but, I'll add a little caveat. Uh, this guy, Chris Hodges, really cool, really cool pastor from Alabama, he says, social justice without spiritual justice is not justice at all. 
If we do all the kind, good, helpful things in the world during this life and we never reveal the true life, we've missed the mark by a mile. Is the difference I'm making eternal? Will it, will the difference I make, will the result be around after I pass away and after all the people that I helped pass away? Will it last? The third question, is the difference I'm making focused? I think that some of us, uh, it's not, I don't want to say it's bad, but I want to say it's misguided and it, and, it, and it doesn't work that well. We think, well, I just want to do um, as many good things as I can and maybe one of them will, will actually mean something. But, and, and I think that we use it almost as a, def- a defense mechanism because we don't really believe that we're great at something. And so we do a bunch of little things. We're just like, I'm just a jack of all trades, you know? Jack of all trades, master of none. But I think that God is challenging us today to take the arrow and put an arrowhead on it and give it some focus because you have a specific difference to make. Am I making a difference that is focused? I want to I talk about light again, okay? Light moves uh, along at full light speed at 182,000 I'm sorry, 186,282.4 miles per second, only when it is uninhibited in free space. But as soon as you introduce another medium like air or glass or water, it slows it down. In the example of glass, this is called refraction, by the way, because the the light rays bend. In the example of glass, glass has a refractive index of 1.5, slowing the speed of light down to 124,000 miles per second, which I think is still pretty fast, but it is slower than the original speed. When light enters a diamond, it slows down even more. It slows down to 77,500 miles per second because it enters and then it bounces around trying to get out. That's what makes diamonds sparkle. It's light that goes in, slows down because it's going, where the heck am I? Can you imagine being inside of a diamond? I mean, it's pretty, but yeah. Um, By the same, very same... (laughs) By the very same principle, eyeglasses are able to help vision because when light hits gla- the glass or plastic lens, it bends, it bends in such a way that I don't know how it helps vision, but the science article that I read said that's how it helps vision. And it makes a great point. Thank you, Discover Magazine. This is my question to you. Are you bouncing around in a prism making a pretty spectacle, something shiny for people to see? Or are you walking with clarity of vision? Is the refraction of your light bouncing or focused? Next question. I think this is the last one. Nope. (laughs) Sorry. Uh, But there's there's only a couple more. Is the difference I'm making effective? Is it working well? Is it to the best of my abilities? Is it efficient? Am I being a good steward? with the gifts that I've given, I mean, been given. Am I a, oh, oh my word, I forgot the word. Ah, man. Am I an incandescent bulb or am I an LED? Now, let me tell you the difference between an incandescent and an LED. An incandescent bulb only harnesses 10% of the energy that it draws in order to emit light. And that it's so little that a lot of countries have begun or completely phased this type of light out because it's almost unethical how inefficient it is. I'm going to say that phrase again. It's almost unethical how inefficient the light is. As opposed to an LED, 
which uses the majority of the energy that it draws in order to, to convert it to light? Are you an incandescent or an LED? And as a part of that, the final question is the difference I'm making synergetic. Now, synergy is probably not a word that most of us use every day, so I'm going to define it. The interact, synergy is the interaction or cooperation of two or more organizations, substances, or other agents to produce a combined effort, I'm sorry, combined effect greater than the sum of their separate effects. Put a little more simply, am I using the gifts and talents that I have in combination with the gifts and talents that someone else has in order to maximize our output? I want to read a, a passage from Ecclesiastes that's usually read... Uh, at like weddings. And there is a part of it that is very much uh, seems like it's about marriage, but, but other parts of it, I think, are just about fellowship and partnership. It says in Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 12, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. Why are two better than one? Because they have a good return. Their ROI increases. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. That's the one I think that it's really good for the context of marriage. <laughs> but how can one keep warm alone? Use a blanket, dude. <laughs> Probably should have left that one out. <laughs> Emails are coming in. Okay. <laughs> Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not easily broken. Me, another person, and God, not easily broken. Okay? I want to talk to you guys about Belgian horses. How many of you heard of a Belgian horse? Belgian horse. Okay. Well, I mean, it's, I mean, you probably, I mean, it's just, it's just a country and then an animal. I mean, it's, but a Belgian horse, it's a really big horse. It's a really strong horse. Okay? One Belgian horse can pull 8,000 pounds by itself. That's four tons, friends. Can you imagine me pulling 8,000 pounds up on stage? I mean, it would be, it would be really pathetic looking. I, would be, I think it would like break my bones and stuff. Um, okay, so let's do some simple math. One Belgian horse can pull 8,000 pounds. So then, by that logic, two Belgian horses can pull 16,000 pounds, right? Well, yes, but not, not, not totally. Two Belgian horses who have never met each other, never worked together, and on that day, our yoke together can pull 24,000 pounds that have never met each other, never been yoked together, triple their output instead of doubling it. But if two Belgian horses are trained together as a team, if two Belgian horses are trained together as a team, they can pull 32,000 pounds. That's four times the output, not two times the output. That is the math of the kingdom. The Bible says one will run 1,000, but two will run 10,000. I don't understand your math. We don't have to understand the math. The reality is that synergy has a multiplier effect, not just an, ad, not just an addition effect. You know, I think about the scripture that, that um, it talks about the disciples, you know, they started as 12. Um, and I remember that there's this part where it says, these are the ones that have turned the world upside down. Twelve. And then there was the 70 and the so on and so forth. But as far as I'm, I mean, unless I need to get my vision checked, there's not 12 people in here and there's not 70 people in here. 
12 turned the world upside down. What could we do? What could we do if we actually believed that that power was residing in us? All these Belgian horses, and we're not Belgian horses. We're much cooler than Belgian horses because we're created in the image of God. And we're much smarter. Maybe not stronger. That's fair. But we're smarter. We're more resourceful. You know, in a church this size or, or maybe even bigger, there's, there's what um, psychologists would call, what, at least what I've observed, but what they would call the bystander effect. Are you guys familiar with the bystander effect? So the bystander effect is actually a really sad thing in psychology. Uh, the experiment would be um, there's, a, there's a place, a room like this, and then it would be as if one person fell down and broke their leg or something and they're crying out. The bystander effect says that the more people that are present, the less likely that anyone will help that person. It's kind of counterintuitive, right? You think that, well, there's more people around, so, so of course they're going to receive help. But every one of those people is either consciously or subconsciously going, there's so many of us, someone else is bound to help. But haven't we seen it with a car on the side of the road? And we drive and we go, well, certainly someone else who's driving by is more qualified than I am. I'm not needed in this situation. And then 45 minutes pass, and they're going, I don't understand. All these cars have passed by. Not one of them has helped. And I've been had this help sign out this whole time. If we all operate on the bystander effect, nothing happens. So I would just, just say, can, can we put the bystander effect to rest today at Heart of the City Church? And just let me tell you, you are needed. You are necessary. You have a place at the table. You have something to bring that's not just... Not just for the sake of bringing, you have something significant to bring to the table here at Heart of the City. And whether it's here or somewhere else, it's not just that we need you to serve. It's that you need you to serve. I know that might sound counterintuitive, but the reason is because you have an itch that needs to be scratched, y'all. And unless you are making a difference for other people and serving them, that won't happen. I'm not trying to make a plug just for Heart of the City. I'm, hey, if this is your home and these are your people, be on a team here. If it's not, be on a team somewhere else. But work with other people to multiply our efforts to see a good return on our labor. I just want to... Oh, by the way, if you do want to get on a team, it's really simple. Just go out to the Connect booth right there. They have a card for you to fill out, and we'll call you this week, and we'll be like, we're so stoked that you're joining the team. It's really simple. I think sometimes that people make the excuse it's a barrier to entry. I really want to get involved, but I don't know how. I just told you it's real easy, and we will get in touch. We will chase you down in a good way, in a good way, in a good way, in a good way. Just love on you. Just welcome me into the fold. But I want to leave you with this. You are designed. It is in your new spiritual genetic makeup to make a dent that lasts far longer than your lifetime here on earth. You are made for that. It's the way you're built. It's the new creation that you are. You are light.